My subject tonight is uh, Broken Christmas. If you look at the four Gospels from a Christmas perspective, only two of them, Matthew and Luke, actually even mention the story of Jesus' birth. Mark and John start uh, 30 years later with the ministry of John the Baptist in their accounts. And, and uh, Luke begins with the birth of Jesus, of uh, John the Baptist, who is Jesus' forerunner. And so only Matthew uh, has this feature. Matthew stands alone with a unique, and maybe you've read your Bible and thought this is pretty boring, an introduction. It's a lengthy genealogy. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. Only Matthew starts that way. And the reason he does is he's wanting to prove to his Jewish readers that Jesus had the right lineage, the right genealogy to be their Messiah. So what Matthew's trying to do, and we read it and we think that's boring, all these begats, but Matthew is actually on a mission. He's connecting Jesus with King David and even further back to Abraham. And, and so that's Matthew's purpose in doing this genealogy. But I got to tell you that Matthew does something really, really strange and kind of weird in this genealogy because in ancient times, um, the only histories that were actually written were written by hired historians, people that were on somebody's payroll. They, they could be on the payroll of the Roman government and they would write histories. And if they were on the payroll of the Roman government, you want to believe that when they wrote the histories of the emperors, they looked good, even though they weren't always good. We had to find out from other more obscure sources about some of those truths about people. And so, so Matthew, when he writes his genealogy, um, he's doing something different. He's not writing to try to make anybody look good. Histories and genealogies were always written with a point in mind. And so the point is, I'm going to connect Jesus with King David and with Father Abraham because it's that lineage, that's what gives Jesus the right to be the Jewish Messiah. And here's where Matthew departs from tradition and departs from what's normal because in that day, you did not put women's names in genealogies. And there are several women in here, and some of them aren't even Jewish, and all of them have something fairly questionable in their past. It's like Matthew goes out of his way to show Jesus doesn't have a pure bloodline, which really is confusing because that's what he's supposed to be proving. And it certainly doesn't look like it's going to help his case that Jesus is the Messiah. Here's the opening. Uh, Pastor Jack referred to some of this this morning. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. Bored yet? And Judas begat Pharaoh and Zerah of Tamar, and Pharaoh begat Ezra, and Ezra begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Naason, and Naason begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. And there we have it. Go in peace. Be blessed. It doesn't seem like it's much for spirituality there. But Matthew's doing something very important to the Jewish scholars, except he seems to have messed it up before he even gets started because, first of all, they don't put women's names in genealogy, not in this society. And secondly, when you take women, you would think that 
you'd choose some good women. There are lots of good, godly, righteous women in the Old Testament. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Deborah, Esther, Miriam, Jael, Jochebed, many more. There are all kinds of righteous women. So it's kind of puzzling why Matthew would mention these and not them. Why mention questionable women when you're writing uh, this genealogy? And you saw them there. There's Tamar in verse 3, and there's Rahab in verse 5, and Ruth in verse 5, and somebody not even named directly, her that had been the wife of Uriah in verse 6. That's Bathsheba, but it doesn't even name her. Why mention those questionable women? This bloodline is broken. This Christmas story hasn't even got started yet, and it's already broken. And really, all of humanity is broken. But aren't you glad that although we were broken, Jesus still came to save us? That is the message we do celebrate at this time of the year. Four women leading up to the birth of Jesus in this genealogy. The first was Tamar. And she was the daughter-in-law of Judah two times. Because she married his first son, Ur, and he died because he was wicked and God killed him. And then she married uh, Judah's second son, Onan, and Onan was wicked and God killed him. And so Judah was a little reluctant to allow her to marry his third son, Shelah. But he told her she could if she'd wait till Shelah grew up. And that's how desperate Tamar was. She hung around. But even when Shelah was grown, that promise was never kept. And in the meantime, Judah, her father-in-law, became a widower. His wife died. And it was then that desperate Tamar decided to take matters in her own hands and she did something quite sordid. She disguised herself as a prostitute, complete with a veil over her face, in order to sleep with Judah and bear a child that would be in his lineage. She actually became pregnant with twins and then Judah, to her shock and surprise, when he found out she was pregnant in front of the entire family, he ordered her to be put to death for her sin. That is, until she revealed that he was the father. Perez and Zerah were eventually born, making Tamar, this is how convoluted this is, making Tamar Judah's daughter-in-law twice, and the mother of two of his sons. That's weird. Tamar is the loveless woman in this genealogy. She is loveless because she's even forced to wear a mask to deceive somebody into cherishing her. The painful thing for Tamar is that not only was she feeling loveless when she donned that mask to deceive, that veil to hide, the painful thing for this lady is that she felt invisible long before she ever put her mask on. She felt invisible when Judah wouldn't honor her. She felt invisible when God killed both of her husbands. She felt invisible when her second husband actually didn't want anything to do with her. He was just following orders and married her. This lady had felt loveless for a long time. Before she ever put the mask on, and long after she took the mask off, Tamar is the lady in the genealogy who doesn't have any right to be there. 
not just because she's a woman and you don't record women's names in this generation in genie. No, there's way more than that. She doesn't deserve to be there because she was so desperate to be loved that she sinned in order to try to find love. She broke God's commands in order to try to find fulfillment for herself. She's the loveless woman in the genealogy. And maybe somebody in here, you feel like you're like Tamar. You feel like you're living without real love or true love. And you feel like you're a little bit alone. And you feel like sometimes you're a little invisible. And nobody notices and maybe nobody cares. That's Tamar. And then there's another woman in this genealogy and her name is Rahab. Now, Tamar may have disguised herself temporarily as a prostitute, but Rahab was a lifelong harlot. She was a woman who had a sinful past and a sordid reputation. She basically ran a brothel out of her house that was built on the walls of the city of Jericho. And she had entertained more men there than she could probably remember. And here's the thing, since Jericho was a Canaanite city, it's pretty likely that she would have been involved not just in prostitution, but in cultic prostitution rituals, even more public sin, and even more degrading activity. Tamar's the loveless lady in this genealogy. Rahab is the worthless lady in this genealogy. The sinful things she has done have robbed her of all self-respect, have cheated her out of ever having a normal life. She is forever, even in the pages of Holy Scripture, Rahab the harlot. And because she had seen herself in this way through these eyes for so long, you know how it is. When you see yourself a certain way, others tend to see you that way. And everybody in Jericho sees her life as worthless too, because she does. It's a terrible thing to live without a feeling of worth. Now we hear a lot about self-worth today. But can I tell you there's a deeper worth than self-worth. There's that worth that you have when you realize, I don't have to work this up, crank this up, pump this up. I don't have to imagine this. God has declared me worthy. I have worth because God says so, not because I say so, and certainly not because somebody else says so. Rahab didn't have that. Rahab was the worthless woman in this genealogy, just a harlot. And maybe somebody in here, you feel like her, and you feel like you're living without real worth. You feel like you don't amount to much. That was Rahab. And then there's Ruth. Now, Ruth actually has a Bible book named after her. And we know the end of the story, but think about the beginning of Ruth's story when she's included in this genealogy. You see, she's kind of like Rahab in this sense. She wasn't an Israelite. Neither was Rahab. Ruth came from a pagan country called Moab, a people literally born out of an act of incest when Lot slept with both of his daughters after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not a very auspicious start to a nation, but that was their history. Moab was such a despicable, wicked nation 
that the descendant of a Moabite was not even allowed to enter the congregation of the Lord for 10 generations. So if you were a descendant of a Moabite, for 10 generations you were blocked from going into the congregation of the Lord. Now Ruth had married a Jewish man, but then he died and he left her a widow. And so Ruth ends up being the hopeless lady in this genealogy. She's lost all hope because the little bit that she was able to achieve to kind of pull herself up and make her life better and connect somehow. And if she could marry this Jewish man, then there was hope down the road, 10 generations into the future that somebody in her family could do right. Somebody in her family could achieve more. Somebody in her family could amount to something. But when he died, she lost all that hope. She's the hopeless lady in this genealogy. Her life is one long story of loss and sadness. She's done nothing to cause all of her pain. Ruth is simply a victim of her circumstances. And there's a lot of people and this time of the year accentuates it in such a painful matter. They live day after day and week after week and month after month and year after endless year without very much hope at all in their life. Never even dreaming, never considering that things can ever be different or better. Never even considering that someday there's some light on the horizon they just see life as one long, endless night of just kind of a dingy gray, and they don't know what's ever going to happen to them. And then finally, there's a fourth woman named in this genealogy that I want to draw your attention to. And, and, and it's so awkward here. She's not even named in the genealogy because her story is even more humiliating and more embarrassing than the first three. Now, you could look at Bathsheba as a victim, except we all know that when it comes to an adulterous affair, it always takes two. Her husband was a loyal soldier to King David, and no doubt he was a good man. That's what the scripture seems to indicate. But when David saw this woman bathing from his palace rooftop, and he sent for her, she became a willing participant in his sinful proposition. And when she became pregnant with his child, David was scrambling. He tried every kind of scheme to make Uriah think that the child was his own, but to no avail. Uriah was too faithful, too loyal, and too good to King David. So finally, David, King David, the writer, the singer, the psalmist, the harp player, the prayer warrior, the worshiper, King David placed Uriah on the front lines of the battle and gave secret orders to all the other soldiers to draw back, essentially signing that good man's death warrant. You know the rest of the story. Bathsheba married David and eventually gave birth to their baby. But then the child died and David's sin was exposed. And when his sin was exposed, her sin was exposed and she forever became that woman because of her mistake. Bathsheba is the nameless woman in this genealogy because her guilt and her shame were so public that no one even wants to name her. 
She's lost everything that matters. She can do nothing to change her mistake. She lives every minute of every day just trying to deal with the sad consequences of what she did to herself. And there are a lot of people that are just like Bathsheba. They live without a good name because of their bad decisions. They're everywhere. This bloodline is broken. This Christmas story is broken. And all of humanity is broken. And the good news of Christmas says, Jesus still loved us enough that he came to save us. Why does Matthew mention these women? Why does he mention a loveless woman like Tamar? Why does he mention a woman who's forced to wear a mask just to try to get a little love from somebody? Why does he mention her? Why does he mention a woman that felt so invisible that she had to resort to deceit to just try to get some attention from somebody? Why does he mention that loveless woman? Why does he mention a woman that's so worthless that she's forever called in scripture Rahab the harlot, a woman that's so worthless that she's known, she's cheap, she's known by every man in Jericho, that's Rahab. The sinful things she's done have torn away all respect. All self-respect is gone. No normal life for her. She's forever got a stain. She's a scarlet woman. She's without worth. Why does Matthew mention a hopeless soul like Ruth? Somebody that wasn't even an Israelite. Born in a nation that was born of incest. From pagan roots. And the one thing that she did right when she married somebody that was part of the covenant, that got shut down, that got shut out because he died. And now it's just her and her mother-in-law heading back to Bethlehem to hope that somebody will take mercy on them. And she's the lady without hope in this generation. A victim of circumstances. Why does Matthew mention this nameless woman, this lady we know as Bathsheba? Of all of the people that you shouldn't put in the bloodline of Jesus Christ, she would probably be pretty close to the top of the list. She was the one that sinned with David the king, and David the king is the one that's supposed to give Jesus the right to be the Messiah by holy royal lineage. And Bathsheba gets torn and pulled and messed up by David's mistake. And it's so humiliating and so scandalous that even when Matthew writes about her, he won't name her. The bloodline is broken, brothers and sisters. This Christmas story that we celebrate, Pastor Jack called it the, the mess in the message this morning. I just want to tell you that this whole Christmas thing, the reason we've turned it so secular is because if we think about the real reason behind Christmas, you have to do something with that. It's easy to buy gifts and have food and have celebration and trim and decorate. It's easy to do that part. That makes us feel good. It's more difficult to think that God looked at us and we were so broken and so messed up that he had to intervene in human history. 
And it just kind of stings a little bit to realize that we were so broken that it cost God the cross of Calvary to rectify this situation. But I'm still so glad he did. I'm still so glad he came. Why does Matthew mention all those women so broken, so damaged, so loveless and worthless and hopeless and even nameless? Why does he mention them? Here's why. Because that story of being worthless and loveless and hopeless and even kind of anonymous, nameless, that's Matthew's story too. Those women are his kind of people. Broken people are Matthew's kind of people. Because Matthew is a tax collector or in the vernacular of the New Testament, Matthew is a publican. A publican was one who betrayed his own countrymen. He benefited Rome with taxes, but he also pocketed some money himself. And so publicans and tax collectors, they were hated by everybody. Publicans were considered so evil that the Jews had a separate category for them. Read your New Testament. Publicans and sinners. Sinners and publicans. Publicans were even worse than the regular sinners. They had their own separate category. The religious people were not happy when Jesus hung out with publicans. But Matthew was so grateful that God had given him a chance to receive salvation and become a disciple that he even made his testimony, his embarrassing past, part of his gospel account. He writes it in chapter 9. As Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew. Now this is Matthew writing in the third person. Something like when pastor says, and pastor says. He says, he sees a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, obviously Matthew's house. Behold, many publicans and sinners. These are all Matthew's friends. All of his buds. Many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they were scandalized. And they said to Jesus' disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? It would be bad enough if he ate with sinners, but publicans? Revenue Canada? Some of you share the same distaste for Revenue Canada. But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that be whole don't need a doctor. If you're so good and you've got your act together so great and your life is so perfect that you are the envy of all of your friends and associates, you don't need a doctor. Let me tell you who needs a doctor. Somebody that's sick. Let me tell you who needs a savior. Somebody that has sinned. That's who needs a savior. They that behold don't need a physician. Just those that are sick. And then Jesus says, now you go. He says to the religious people who are about to unload a truckload of guilt and shame and criticism and condemnation on all Matthew's friends and Matthew himself. 
He could have airbrushed this out of the story. He didn't have to tell about his personal encounter with Jesus. He could have just left that out or maybe just put a little summary verse. But no, he tells it in detail because Matthew wants you to know that I was one of the publicans. I was one of the sinners. I was one of the cheats and the no goods. I was one of the messed up people. And Jesus still loved me enough to invite me to be one of his disciples. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew's account. And of course Matthew is the one who would write this because it happened in his living room. Jesus looked at those religious leaders and he said, Go ye and you learn what that meaneth. You go study this. Stop studying everybody to criticize them. Stop studying everybody to condemn them. Stop studying everybody to feel holier than thou and more righteous than somebody else and that you're better than a bunch of other people. If you want to study something, go home, look in your mirror and learn this lesson. God says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. I'm not interested in your praise if it comes with a side of pride. I'm not interested in your worship if it comes with a side of criticism of everybody else you feel doesn't measure up to your little standards. Because when you had no standards and when you had no hope and when you had no worth and when nobody loved you and some people went so far as to not even name you, they just avoided you. That's when God didn't lean out. He leaned in. God didn't pop you with a bunch of condemnation. God hit you with love and mercy and forgiveness. Jesus said, you go learn this lesson that when it comes to God, He's not interested in all your impressive sacrifice. He's interested in if you can do the same thing that he did for you. He showed you mercy. Now can you go and show somebody else mercy? For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Without doing damage to the scripture, I just want to explain that. Jesus isn't criticizing righteous people. He came to give us his righteousness so we could be made righteous. So he's not criticizing righteous people. To understand that properly, you need to put a little four-letter prefix in there. I am not come to call the self-righteous. I'm come to call sinners to repentance. See, here's the problem with self-righteous people. Self-righteous people think they've grown beyond repentance. They think they've grown beyond the need for help. They think they've outgrown the need for God. They certainly think they've outgrown the need for correction from the scripture. They are self-righteous. Jesus said, I can't make any headway with self-righteous people. But if somebody will just admit, I'm so broken, that's when I lean in. That's when I embrace. That's when I come running. Just when somebody says, I'm broken. Matthew records that story in his gospel. Matthew learned that God could even use people's failures, people's messes, Pastor Jack, people's brokenness, even people's sin, people's horrible wrong turns and wrong roads and seasons of coldness and backsliding and mistakes. Matthew learned that God could even use that because that was Matthew. 
That was who he was. And he learned God could use that to bring about his purpose. Matthew, no wonder he put those women in the genealogy. No wonder he named four women. One was loveless, one was worthless, one was hopeless, and one was even nameless. No wonder he named them. They're like him. No wonder he writes a mention of them in Jesus' genealogy. He's trying to scream at us and say, Jesus didn't come for a perfect bloodline. Jesus came from a broken bloodline. But here's the good news about that. Jesus didn't come for perfect people to take to his perfect heaven. Jesus came for broken people that he could fix and take to heaven. For sick people that he could heal and take to heaven. For sinful people that he could save and take to heaven. For messed up people that he could forgive and take to heaven. That's what Matthew's trying to tell us. And you remember, of course, because you're Bible lovers, you remember that there's actually a fifth woman in the story of Jesus. It's called, uh, her name is Mary. And she shall bring forth a son. Same chapter. Matthew's opening shot. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And here's the line that's so awesome. Matthew says, now all this was done. That is one cast of characters in that genealogy. Now, I picked on the ladies in the genealogy, but there are some messed up men in that genealogy. There are wicked kings in that genealogy. There are backsliders in that genealogy. There are people that made horrible decisions, and all of Israel suffered for it in that genealogy. That's a messed up lineage. And Matthew says at the end of it, now all this was done. God used everything that happened. God was behind the scenes directing and behind the scenes pointing the way and behind the scenes just kind of redeeming some people's messes and bad mistakes and bad choices and wrong turns. All this was done so that there could come a day that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, out of all of this mess, out of all of this genealogy, out of all of this brokenness, behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Which being interpreted is God walked right into the mess called humanity. He's with us. Which being interpreted is God wasn't put off when somebody was loveless or hopeless or worthless or nameless. God wasn't put off by any of it. He waded right in. He didn't hold back or lean out. He leaned in and ran to. And because of that, we have a Savior and a message and a Christmas that when you look at it closer isn't so broken after all. It's broken at the first. It's healed afterward. It's broken at the first. It's redeemed afterward. It's broken at the first and then God turns it around. God even used failure to bring it about. This bloodline is broken. The human race is broken. Even the Christmas story that we celebrate every year it's broken. And Jesus still came to save us. And I am so glad 
I came here tonight not to preach to the mass of people that kind of have their act together and you're doing okay today. I came here tonight to single out the one or the two or the five or the ten that in this crowd of people, you're not doing okay. And um, you're not doing okay because of you. You're not doing okay because you messed up. You're not doing okay because you're hiding. You're not doing okay because you're cold. You're not doing okay because you're lukewarm. You're not doing okay because it's been a long time since you prayed. You're not doing okay because you've come to the realization that church attendance is kind of a, a chore when the joy has leaked out. I'm preaching to you tonight. I would not single you out or embarrass you. I would not call you out. I would not point at you or point you out or indicate you in any way. I didn't come here to hurt you. I came here to talk to you. Came here to tell you that the whole reason we celebrate this incarnation thing, the whole reason we celebrate this Christmas story and we take time to trim the building up beautifully and the pastors, they get thinking about the incarnation and the Christmas story and we have concerts and songs and whatever. It's to just refocus us one more time. We only do it once a year. But to refocus us one more time on the reason Jesus came. Jesus did not come for self-righteous people. Jesus came for people just like you. Jesus came for people that because you were feeling unloved, you made some decisions, and now you feel trapped. Jesus came for people who felt so worthless that you made some decisions, and now you feel more worthless than ever. Jesus came for people who Hope has leaked out and you just feel like I am trapped on this merry-go-round that never stops and I'm so exhausted and I am just so frustrated and I'm just so disappointed in what's going on in my life and disappointed in how my life has turned out. Jesus came for people that are so filled with guilt and shame that they're like Bathsheba. They can't even raise their head. They're, they're just anonymous in a crowd. They just, they just want to fade into oblivion because they feel so low. Jesus didn't come for people that are on top of the world. Jesus came for people that the world has gotten on top of them and pummeled them and pushed them into the dirt and hurt them and pained them and frustrated them and shamed them. And Jesus came for them. Jesus came for you. That's who he came for. Church, would, would you just lift up a prayer right now? I don't know if this is a praising moment, but it sure is a praying moment. Pastor's not going to do anything crazy or weird. I'm not singling anybody out. That is not why I'm preaching. I'm preaching deeper than that. I'm preaching for somebody that needs to make some decisions that are different and some decisions that would change something. Would you pray for a minute, church? That's kind of a nice soothing prayer. I'm not looking for soothing right now. I'm looking for prayer that just kind of pushes a little bit. Would you just
pray a little bit. Just push a little bit. Kathy, come on back and help me, would you? Pray, church, just, just for a moment. We've got time. We're not late. We've got time. Jesus. You forgive me if my delivery of the message tonight sounds a little tired. I'm probably a little tired. But I know what I feel. And I believe I know what God's trying to say to us today, especially when both pastors end up pretty much preaching the same message. Would you close your eyes right now and, and just um, shut yourself in with God a little bit? And would you take down the defenses? It's just you and Jesus. I'm not going to single you out in any way, so you can just relax. And if you just take down your defenses and let Jesus touch you right now, if you'd let Jesus in, if you'd let him heal that hurt, if you'd let him come beside you in your loneliness, because you know that what you're doing to cope with that loneliness, it's not helping you. It's damaging you. If you just let Jesus in for a moment, you know that what you've been doing, it makes you feel worthless. But you keep doing it because it kind of deadens the pain and it just kind of numbs the sorrow and the loneliness and the frustration. And so you keep doing that and it just makes you feel more and more worthless and more and more out of control. And Jesus is here. And he didn't come for people that have it all together. He came for you. 
He came for you. I'm so sorry, church. I, I just need to stay here for a moment. We can't get nervous about conviction. We just have to let conviction work. Conviction isn't to hurt somebody or embarrass somebody. Conviction is to make sure somebody's real with them and God. And we can't just kind of rush on by it or we frustrate what the Lord would like to do. Oh my.